Hey, everyone. Welcome to Group Text. Okay, I'm going to give you a quiz to see if you can figure out who today's guest is. Okay, I think you guys can do this. He's been in more than 40 films and TV shows, has five Emmy nominations, three Golden Globe nominations, and four SAG Awards for Best Ensemble in a TV Drama. Here's a hint. The show for which he won ran 15 seasons, 11 of which he starred in. Okay, if you haven't figured it out by now, I'll throw you one last softball. He wasn't a doctor, but he played one on the TV show that took place in an emergency room, along with another actor by the name of George Clooney, who you may have heard of. Here to talk about his suspenseful new film, At the Gates, which opens on theaters November 3rd, is none other than Noah Wiley. Welcome, Noah. You make me sound very accomplished. That does not jibe with my imposter syndrome at all. Hi. Every time they they give my, I'm like, and I still think I have done nothing. Isn't that bizarre? You must have the same shrink. Oh, <laughs> are you? Have you been there so long that you're putting their children through college? <laughs> college, med school. Ah, uh, well, that makes me feel a little less alone in the world. Okay, but I'm not sure you remember this. You probably don't, but. At the Golden Globes, one year, it was your the show's first year there, and you and George came up to talk to me, and it was during a commercial, and as usual, my, my I was going to say my therapist, my stylist had put me in, it's, you know, it's just a very- Very synonymous role. But, but my brain, you know, shopping therapy, it all comes together, um, had put me in like three pieces of chiffon held together by a safety pin, and it was cold. And we were in commercial and I was standing shivering and you said to me, you're wearing an overcoat. And you said, would you like my coat? And I said, no, no, I'm fine. And George said, the only woman in America who would turn down your coat. Now, thinking back, the reason I didn't take your coat is I was worried you were going to try and take it back and I'd be freezing again. And, you know, I didn't need a favor like that. I needed it for like, not just the interview. I needed it for the whole red carpet show. And then I was thought to myself, what am I going to do? Go run around the Beverly Hilton going, here's your coat. Oh my gosh. That's so charming. Well, those were the days where everybody gave us clothes for free. I'm sure I would have, I would have let you keep it. No, now that it was before no, that. That was, was bef- oh my God. No, it was your first year on the carpet. Well, maybe it was my coat then. Then I was just being gentlemanly. You were, but like we. You would have, I would have had to give it back. I think uh, maybe I was flirting. Well, I wish someone had clued me in at that point um, because I would have been like, hi. Um, okay, <laughs> we're going to talk about ER in a little while. You know, your little medical procedures, procedural show that, you know, changed TV, but again, whatever. But I want to talk about your new movie, At the Gates. It feels like modern day Hitchcock. Um, explain the story to people. Very contemporary theme, uh, affluent couple with uh, a woman who works in their house as a domestic, brings her son to, to work with her one day, and ICE shows up, and they are undocumented workers. And it becomes a question about whether this family is going to turn them over to ICE to be deported or whether they're going to try to keep them hidden for a period of time in which they could get them out under safer circumstances. Um, and then gradually begin to wonder whether or not Everything that you've been told up until that point is true, and everybody's operating from the motivations that you were led to believe. 
and it takes on a kind of a thriller aspect. And um, I got the script and I just thought you use the word Hitchcockian. Yeah, it was very tight. It was a really interesting moral quandary that didn't tip the bit on what kind of movie it was for the longest time. It sustained this wonderful tension. And the character that I played had all sorts of ambiguity about him that allow you to play sort of different kinds of shades and colors that don't really make sense until you reverse engineer the whole thing after the movie's over, which I love the challenge of. Uh, and then I met the filmmaker and for his tender age of whatever he is, he's incredibly sophisticated and really knowledgeable. And I, it's rare when you can trust somebody with your work and your time like that. So I just threw in. It's a great movie. And again, you there's, it, it really is psychologically, um, ambiguous in the best way throughout yeah. the film. You know, it, the thing is, and also I was thinking about this, zero special effects, it's totally story-driven, but was it fun for you to go from working on big fantasy budget shows like The Librarian and Falling Skies to something that was such um, delicate filmmaking? I wear a lot of hats on those other jobs, which I love, you know, they let me write and they let me direct and I sometimes produce on them. And that gives you this wonderful bird's eye view of the whole project. And then you get to dive into your little part and dive back out. But sometimes it's just nice to be a hired gun. Sometimes it's just nice to show up on somebody else's set and be told that's your mark and these are your lines. And uh, I really just wanted that experience. I wanted to feel like an actor who was leaning out of his comfort zone and doing something just for the pure joy of working with an ensemble on a small movie. You'll appreciate this. About halfway through filming, I look around and I realize, I think I'm the oldest person on set. <laughs> and like, like not by like five years, but like, by 20 years where you're like, I'm in my fifties and these guys are all in their twenties and thirties and they're making a movie and they seem to know how to make a movie more than I know how to make a movie. And maybe I don't know anything anymore. That's kind of how I just sat there thinking, maybe this is how this character feels like the world has passed him by. He doesn't know how to be relevant anymore. And he's just trying to hang on to younger people. Maybe they'll let him stay for a little longer. That had to be a disturbing feeling. <laughs> I don't mean yeah, to you're, laugh. You're like, where's the old grip? Where's the old prop guy? Where's the old teamster? Nope. Just well, how, you. How about you're having to explain the show you were on for 11 seasons and how it was so important? Because also they don't have to watch anything in real time. No. They don't know no. what destination viewing is other than like the Super Bowl. Yeah, it's interesting to talk about well, what is it, how important is it if it's not relevant today, right? I mean, it had its time. Absolutely. But I always fit, find it fascinating when I'm like, no, the red carpet used to be really different and like people were allowed to have fun. Yeah. And it was live and it was exciting and people could, well, I could say no one's allowed to have fun anymore, but that's a separate, separate. We area. had a lot of fun. Oh we my God. It was fun. No one was, no one's publicists were terrified. It was a good time. So you're part of a small cast, but the house itself is really a character. Where, yeah. where was it? Where did you film? We found a house that's just on the south end of Hancock Park, north end of K-Town, Koreatown in Los Angeles, where there are still some of these old grand homes. And this one was 
just in in sad enough shape that they let a film crew occupy it for a couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, we would basically paint a room and film in a room and then paint a room and film in a room. It was really kind of hopscotching around the, the location. But it plays such a significant role. It, it, the environment is a character in this piece um, because it's the it's the setting for this incredible class conflict where you see two different modes of life come together over a really important contemporary issue and have to make sense of each other. I mean, it really does deal with very current and intense issues, immigration, bias, classism, but then it turns everything upside down. What do you hope? I hate this question, but what do you hope people take away from it? I always hate asking that because well, I know I, I know, I know why you hate it, but this one actually has an answer to it, which is that you. I hope everybody comes a great way, and this is also sort of a trite response, but I mean it with a little more empathy for everybody involved in this story, because it's really easy to judge everybody at a first glance. You can judge the mother and her son who are working as domestics in this house. You can judge the affluent couple and the sort of perfect marriage that they seem to be having. You could judge everybody. Uh, and you'd be wrong. And by the end of the movie, you get to sort of see how three-dimensional and flawed everybody is in this story and how everybody's up against it in their own relative way. And as are we all. And so my hope is that everybody comes away from from an issue that you tend to look at very black and white and say, my God, this is way grayer than I ever gave it credit for. You're a dad. Do you find it? I mean, I know I have a 22-year-old son, which is terrifying, who's about to graduate from college. Um do you find how it complicated, and I do, in how you address these topics with your kids versus how they were addressed for us in totally. in the world? Well, you know, I'm parenting alongside Dr. Google and Professor Google, and you know, it's really hard to to give your context for issues when the world's context is at your kids fingertips in a second. So it's harder to be a parent than it ever was before. And conversely, it's harder to be a kid than it ever was before. So I find myself ne negotiating this frustration of whether I need to be more accepting of the fact that their reality is so totally different, or they need to be more accepting of the fact that mine is so totally different. Um, we got to meet in the middle somewhere. Have you scolded you yet? Oh, my God. Well, all the time. I mean, yeah. they mostly scold me over being so technologically illiterate and for being yeah. such a dinosaur. You know, I joined social media only so I could communicate with them in the language in which they like to communicate. It is uh, nothing that comes organically. To me. That's how I know sometimes my son is still functioning is I'll send him something on Instagram and I'll get an emoji back. I'm like, OK, he's still good. Yeah. It's yeah. so sad. Yeah, no, uh, I do that. First, I leave the phone message, then I send the text, then I, I DM. <laughs> I'm yeah. making my way through. <laughs> do yours actually listen to voicemails? No. And most of the time, I leave try to leave them a voice message, and it tells me that there's no room left on their machine and because they haven't emptied the inbox in six months. Yeah. So you go to text, then you have to go to DM. Yeah. I worked my way down the same food chain. Makes you feel special and all that. We have the same shrink and the same kids. Okay, we're finding all sorts of coming are here. We are just like this. Okay, I got to go to my notes for this one because it's such a long list. Here we go again. You've been in the cast of multiple TV shows with long runs, Falling Skies, five seasons. The Librarian came out of three franchise movies with you as the star and then spun off for four seasons as a series. Basically, everything ran runs forever. ER, 15 
seasons and concluded with you appearing in the most number of episodes. Okay, so here's my question. Do you have some sort of secret altar somewhere that you put to use that puts spells on television executives to make them continue to run all of your shows? Because there's being lucky and there's seeing Bigfoot, the Kraken, and the Loch Ness Monster and having your camera with you every time. So I'm starting to think that 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 might have happened. This episode is sponsored by Via Hemp. Ah, yes, summer, longer days, warmer nights, and the incessant chirping of crickets, reminding you that sleep is a precious commodity. Whether you need to set the mood in the bedroom or just unwind after a day battling the sun, Via has your back. Enter their Rest and Recovery Gummies, a magical concoction of passion flower, L-theanine, and cannabinoids designed to lull you into a state of blissful tranquility. With options for both the THC tolerant and the THC shy, Via ensures you'll find your perfect dosage for achieving peak comfort. Via isn't just about taming the sleep monsters. They've got a whole array of gummies to cater to every whim and fancy with or without THC. And they'll discreetly ship their goodies straight to your doorstep, no matter which of the 50 states you call home. Just sit back, relax, and let Via work its magic. So if you're 21 plus, you can get 15% off a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code. Head to viahemp.com and use the code GROUPTEXT to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com, V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P.com. So I have tried their Zen gummies, and I got to tell you, they are amazing. I live in a very sort of continual stressed out state from work to being a mom to, well, just life in general. And the Zen gummies have been amazing for me. Head to viahemp.com and use the code GROUPTEXT to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies, 21+. plus. That's viahemp.com, V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P. Dot com and use the code group text at checkout. Enhance your every day with via hemp. I am very, very fortunate. I've been very, very lucky and I'm extremely grateful to have uh, been accepted into people's living rooms for the last 30 years in one form or another. I don't know what the alchemy is other than trying to find good material and put myself in the company of really talented people whenever possible. And, uh, and never take for granted that audience's interest in time, you know, always make sure the storytelling is up to, up to the caliber that I would want to watch. Um, but I, I wish I knew most of the time I feel like I can't buy a job, to be honest. Most of the time I've, I've played with the same insecurities that we all are. And so when you hear back to you that how well you've done, it's sort of this, the disconnect there is always jarring because I always feel like I haven't done my best work yet. And I haven't really found my, my stride yet. But I think that's just part of the the artistic nature and the process is that we're always slightly dissatisfied so that we keep leaning forward. You're much more um, evolved with that than I am because I just generally go into the fetal position, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, mean, I have a house full of people that won't allow me to take that position. <laughs> okay, we have to, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk a tiny bit about ER. How did you get the role of John Carter? 
I auditioned. I auditioned. I uh, signed with the manager who sent me the pilot script, which I thought was a feature because it was a two-hour pilot and had been written as a two-hour as a feature by Michael Crichton in 1975. And uh, I auditioned. I got called back. I went to network. I met Michael Crichton and I met John Wells, and um, they gave me the part on March 17th, 1993, and uh, changed my life. What was, once you realized you had some pretty good jobs, Curry, what was the first major purchase you made? I just drove it yesterday. I still have the Ford Bronco I bought with my first ER check. The first, the pilot check, I blew on an airline ticket to Europe. George Clooney, Eric LaSalle, and I all went to Spain and spent that summer pounding around together. When I came back, I didn't have any money. And so when the show got picked up, George lent me enough money to pay my rent. And then when I got paid, I paid him back and then put bought a Bronco, the OJ Bronco. I was like, who knew that that all these years later would become like the hot car again? Not the OJ Bronco. One. No, but the Bronco is like the hottest car on the market right now. Um, Anthony Edwards once said that people would come up to him and ask medical advice. What was the weirdest? I mean, did people come up and go, show you, do you think I should have that looked at? I mean, what was the weirdest thing someone ever asked you? Well, I could tell you, I had the misfortune or fortune of being first on site at several accidents over the last 30 years where everybody looks to you assuming you know way more than you do. And uh, fortunately, nobody died on my watch. <laughs> but uh, it's a really unkind moment when you're on a plane and they say, there's a passenger in the back of the plane experiencing chest pains. If anybody has any medical experience, can they please let his flight attendant know? And every head goes like this, looking at you. <laughs> and all you think is, oh, God, please let there be a real doctor on this plane. Is, it's not me. It's not me. Um, how did everyone who talks about being on very, very long series is fearful of being pigeonholed? How long, and it's not anybody's fault. It just is the nature of the beast. How long did it take you before you felt like you were no longer pigeonholed? Well, there's pigeonholed and then there's associated with one role in particular. And uh, there's just no way. That's what I mean. Yeah. Well, I never looked at that as a bad thing with, with John Carter because he, ran such a long run. He went from being kind of comic relief and young, doe-eyed, innocent to wizened, drug addict, you know, experienced physician. So there was enough colors and changes in that body of work that I felt if I was looking for another job, I'd probably be all right. But what I didn't realize until afterwards was it wasn't so much we've seen you it's that we are we know you we know you so well you're you've been in our homes and in our lives for so long and such an intimate level it's hard for us to accept you in something else not that you can't do anything else but we just need you to go away for a little while so that we can watch a bunch of other stuff and then rediscover you and we'll be ready for it then and i i didn't anticipate that it would take I don't know however long it took, but now I'm really conscious of, the, and I think art needs to have that cooling off period. You can't just go from one to the next. People do need to sort of forget about you and be able to rediscover you. And you need to sort of go through catharsis and burial and rediscovery and rebirth as well. Man, you have a good therapist. Um, he's fucking brilliant, man. Um, well, <laughs> sitting right here, I'll tell him. <laughs> <laughs> I love that your therapist. That your therapist. They're all giving me the thumbs up. Yeah, that all your therapist. That your therapists are all on your press tour with you. 
I, oh, I love that so much. Um, it's such a good idea too. I have mine like on speed dial and I, I leave messages like it's not urgent, but it's time sensitive. (laughs) That's, that's always my denoting time sensitive. Um, how do you look back now? And I, and when we're all in the midst of something, you don't realize how special that moment in time was. Like I think back about the times on the red carpet and fashion place where, cause you were so deep in the work you didn't realize. And I was very fortunate that I always took a step back to kind of look around, but that was for different reasons. Cause I was observing cause I wanted to produce more the, the sort of mechanics of everything. Um, you're so intense. You're in a series how long after it did you finally realize and go, wow, that was magical? I remember, uh, this is going to sound grandiose, but I mean it only in a relative sense. Uh, I read a quotation that Neil Armstrong once said about landing on the moon that in a lot of ways he felt like he missed out on the moon landing because he was on the moon. And I, I understood what he meant by that because the what everybody felt about ER wasn't for us because we were on the soundstage making it. So I wasn't really able to appreciate it in real time. And that hit me most profoundly during the pandemic where I was home, not working and feeling really unnecessary with my skill sets. And I was getting all this mail from first responders saying, thank you. Thank you for inspiring me to go into career emergency medicine. Thank you for keeping me inspired while I go to work in what is a nightmare. And I looked at all these emails and thought, wow, outside the birth of my kids, this is probably the best thing I ever do with my life because I had a hand in promoting a generation of people to go into the workforce and we so desperately need them right now. So that was when I appreciated the impact of the show was when I was getting the thank yous in the darkest hour from the people that were on the front lines. It's a lot like, I was thinking about that when you said to your kids, I know looking back with Cooper about to graduate from college, you don't appreciate it while you're in it. Cause when you're in it, you're kind of just like, Oh dear God, this phase is the worst. This phase is the worst. This phase is the worst. And on one hand, I think, Oh Jesus, what's coming next? Uh, what's the next wave that's about to hit me? And you suddenly realize like, oh, that was a great one. You know? I know that we both lost a friend this weekend yes, and we nothing makes you take stock more than than that. Matthew and I went to high school together. It's crazy. We were in school plays together. And then... I, uh, he and I auditioned for in the job that I got my SAG card. They put us in the scene together. I was 17. What, what was that... What show was that? Well, he didn't. I mean, he didn't get the job actually, uh, and I didn't get that job either. But they gave me a consolation line. Well, they threw me a line, and it was a two-part television miniseries with Robert Urich and Joanna Kearns called "Blind Faith." And Matt and I were was that the one about the the serial killer? He played a guy who hires a hitman to kill his wife, and he's got three. You know, yeah, isn't it? And this hit me very profoundly last night that you drift from people and that's just sort of life. But like, I looked back last night and I thought, God, how could someone who, and I'm sure you think that too, end up in so much pain. 
And it, it was very, very profound for me in thinking about, here's someone I only had good memories of, but who I did, the first time we met on the red carpet, we were both like, oh my God, I can't believe we're here. We can't believe we're here. And then I watched him change. And I remember at the time thinking, aren't we important now? But in hindsight, I realized he was like in the beginning of the throes of his addiction. You know, I was trying to say to my, my, my son called me up and I wanted to sort of get context for what my relationship with him was. And I was saying, you know, it's really hard to get famous when you haven't cleaned your closet a little bit, you know, because you're going to get the brightest light on everything you don't want anybody to see. And so you're going to hide it as well as you possibly can for as long as you possibly can. And there will never be a moment where you can deal with it until it hits, it comes up and it, you want to have a support group. You want to have a good family. You want to have a sense of faith. You want to have a hobby. You want to have a sense of self. You want to have, you know, you want to have all these things in place before you hit your moment, but so rarely is that ever the case. And so you are always course correcting and trying to get your head above water. And I, I've just been really fortunate. I've been really fortunate, really blessed to have people enter my life at moments that made a difference. And um, I'm sorry for anyone who had, doesn't have those people at those moments. You and I are very similar, but it could be because we're both L.A. kids. Industry brat, L.A. kids. Yeah, as was Matthew. But I didn't know that Mr. Fancy Pants went to Thatcher, <laughs> which is a very elite boarding school in Santa Barbara. Now, I can't remember. Is it Thatcher or Kate that gave you a horse? It was Thatcher. <laughs> but let me remind you what happens. If you get into trouble in public school, they send you to charter school. You get into trouble at charter school, they send you to private school. You get into trouble at private school, they send you to boarding <laughs> school. <laughs> but it's hilarious. It's like, he went to Thatcher? <laughs> you know? And then you... Yeah, and then you went to Northwestern. I only attended Northwestern for the smallest program that they offered to high school juniors. But I lied for years and said that I was a graduate until I realized that they could check on that kind of stuff. So now I no longer claim uh, any kind of degree from that university. Yeah. How'd you trick your parents into that? My parents were really hard. I said, I said, I want to be an actor. And they said, that's wonderful. We pay for education. And so they basically said, if you want to try it, you got to go out there and make it work. So uh, being a prideful kid, I took that as a challenge and I moved in with my best friend in a tiny apartment on Hollywood Boulevard and I got a job busing tables at the Bellage Hotel and then I got really lucky. Yeah. Well, I wish I had taken and kept your coat. I'm just going to say that. No, Wiley, thank you so much. At the gate, it's a must-see in theaters on November 3rd. Really lovely to see you and talk to you again. Media Production.